0: That's what she said That's what she said That's what she said That's what she said Well, that's what she said
1: Welcome to That's What She Said Conversations with interesting people From the world of sports, music, comedy, and more Talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures
0: I'm Robert Smigel and my dilemma is uh, a very relatable one I have twin boys who are uh, getting bar mitzvah next year and uh, we still uh, have not figured out uh, which synagogue. I know every listener deals with this exact dilemma, but um, somehow I don't have a solution.
1: All right. I know I'm the commish and I'm supposed to have solutions for literally everything, but this is actually a tough one for me. There was only one Jewish kid in my very small junior high class, and he threw a kick-ass bar mitzvah, like best party of my young life. And so I asked my parents when all the other bar mitzvahs would be, and they had to break it to me that that was the one and only ever on my social calendar. So I realized that I need someone more qualified to speak to the uh, the high stress, high stakes, big money game of bot and bar mitzvahs. And I know just the person to do it.
0: All right, Smigel, here's what I would do. I would get in a bidding war. Which temple wants you for the least amount of money? That's what I would do. Which synagogue wants the Smigel family and their twins bar mitzvah for the least amount of money? I would get into a bidding war and get the price down as much as you can because these things are crazy expensive, especially when you're paying for two at once. So, two synagogues, competitors, bidding war, best possible price.
1: The, the studio studio My guest today is the great Robert Smigel, actor, TV comedy writer, screenwriter, creator of some of your all-time SNL faves, the hand and the voice behind Triumph, the insult comic, the creator of Da Bears, the superfans, Ace and Gary, the rest of the Saturday Night Live TV Funhouse cartoon shorts. He's also currently in the acclaimed movie Marriage Story. Also, he has new podcast, Triumph, new podcast, called Let's Make a Poop. This guy is a legend. Uh, My husband and I actually saw him do an interview here in Chicago a couple months ago. Ended up spending hours afterward picking his brain about the Saturday Night Live days and learning about how Triumph came to be. Deciding that Smigel is probably the nicest, most decent and cool legend that we've ever hung out with. In fact... That night, Brad kind of joked about quitting his job and becoming Robert's unpaid intern for a year and then mentioned it to me six or seven more times until I realized it was not a joke. My husband legit wants to quit his job and go hang out with this man crush. Robert was stuck in a traffic in this interview, so you could occasionally hear windshield wipers and car horns while we talk about his favorite sketches, coming up with the super fans, how he pissed off Bulls owner Jerry Reinstorf at one of the team's championship parades, Uh, Also, the nerves that he had getting back to SNL to write for Adam Sandler's return, how giving Bill Clinton eight nipples sunk the Dana Carvey show, and an incredible unstaged moment at uh, one of his Night of Too Many Stars events. So uh, we had a ton to get to. We're definitely going to have to have him back. So consider this part one of many.
0: That's what she said.
1: So we're talking to an in-transit Robert Smigel, who I love this. He's got so much going on right now. He's in the critically acclaimed new movie Marriage Story. Triumph is making appearances on The Masked Singer. He's getting ready for the launch of Let's Make a Poop, Triumph's new podcast. And meanwhile, as we've been trying to figure out when he's going to come on the pod, he's been like, I'm just waiting for something good to plug. I need to start working on some stuff. You're everywhere, dude. This must be what it's like to be a superstar, where you're you're doing all these amazing things, and they don't quite register as amazing. You're so used to um, being crazy you know, busy.
0: Sometimes I look at things. Sometimes I look at them from Triumph's point of view. You know, so <laughs> to him, the, the mass singer is is a show to be mocked and uh, and and is meant to be a, a nader in Triumph's career.
1: You know, like <laughs> and of course, I, he's not involved in the Marriage Story, so he doesn't care about that one.
0: Oh no, the Marriage Story is uh, you know the least of his uh, concerns. The Marriage Story is uh, is such a blip. Oh, no. Now I'm getting. (laughs) That's my uh, ringtone, by the way. I was trying. Let me hold on. I'm so sorry. No worries. I, I, I have to take this.
1: How much do you wish she was just like a huge dick to whoever that was on the phone? (laughs) Okay, let's get back on track.
0: That's what she said.
1: On this pod, we always start near the beginning. So I want to start with you at one point in your life, at a young age, attending Cornell University to study pre-dental and following the footsteps of your father. There are so many people who want to be in the entertainment business, and there's such a leap of faith in your own talent that is so unnatural at that age. So I'm not surprised that you wouldn't necessarily believe you were destined for stardom but why did you believe you were destined for a dentist office
0: uh because it was the path of least resistance which uh at that age sounds uh safe and adequate all i wanted to ever do was be funny and goof around i i wanted to be a comedian when i was like three then i wanted to be a cartoonist because i was a very good uh cartoonist like by the time i was five and then I started doing impersonations of my friends. And I always wanted to just be the funny person, but I did not uh have any aspir any serious belief that I could succeed. I just felt like uh that's just something that doesn't happen to people. And um it's a very different world now where you can make a fifteen second TikTok video and think uh you're in show business basically. But uh but back then, it seemed incredibly remote. You know, there were like three channels on my television, <laughs> and uh, everybody funny was like in their fifties, <laughs> and uh, there was I was like Bob Hope, Red Skelton, and um, Smothers <laughs> Brothers, you know. And then it, in the seventies, I started worshiping, you know, Steve Martin and Saturday Night Live, that kind of thing. But I still didn't really believe that i could make anybody but friends laugh necessarily
1: you thought it was least resistance but you still ended up at an ivy league school does that mean you were sort of an overachieving hard-studying kid even if you didn't know you know the passion for dentistry and whether it would Uh, come to you
0: i was a good boy i really was not a troublemaking kid all my the only mischievous outlet i had was being funny and making fun of my friends and teachers yeah. I didn't do drugs, really. I had no interest in it or in partying in general. I really just enjoyed, like, comedy was my outlet and my source of uh, rebellion. And uh, that's the only time I ever got in trouble in school was if I was making fun of somebody too much and couldn't get it through my skull that that person had feelings as opposed to it was just being a baby. Don't you get it? you're 12 years old and you've got boobs and you're a kid and you're a guy. (laughs) Well, that's funny. Why aren't you laughing? Why are you being (laughs) such a, so sensitive? It's a joke. And I really like, I was not a mean kid. I just thought that it was so funny that my friend had breasts at such a young age and be, and he was a boy that, um, I couldn't understand why he, uh, and just
1: lighten up. (laughs) Right, right. I think there's a lot that comes in the process of aging that sort of tempers the sense of humor because we actually have empathy for the people who are the butt of the jokes. And you have to get a lot smarter, a lot smarter and a lot more clever to still be funny when you can't be cruel.
0: Yes, and it's ongoing because, like, you know, by the time I was at Saturday Night Live, I understood why teasing my kids, my friends when they were 12 was you know, had consequences that I hadn't appreciated. (laughs) But but I did not have uh, an empathy chip installed yet for celebrities of any kind. And there are sketches that I wrote when I was in my 20s and even my 30s that I would not write now. Right. Certain people I would just lay off because I would feel like, ah, they're going through a hard time. Their show got canceled, whatever it is, you know.
1: Right. So you're, you're at Cornell. You realize dentistry is, is not the thing for you. You decide to go to NYU. And yeah. while you're there, you, you enter a stand up comedy contest. And I love in one of the interviews I read with right. you, you said you thought you had a leg up because you didn't really know anyone because you lived at home. You hadn't been granted the opportunity to live on campus at NYU.
0: Yeah. I was a Manhattan resident. Yes. Yeah. So I couldn't live on campus back then.
1: Why did you think that gave you a leg up because you hadn't used your material or because you'd be surprisingly, um, you know, a fresh
0: so much face a leg up is at, uh, my fear of humiliating myself <laughs> in front of people who knew me was dissipated because nobody knew me. I mean, really just the people who were in my classes knew me. And this was a time when I, so I went to NYU and I, I hadn't totally given up on dentistry. I had taken a year of, like, arts classes at NYU because I'd been beaten down so much by my failure to do well. Once I was at Cornell and taking pre-dental classes, it was impossible. I I was so ill-prepared, and I just got, like, D-minuses in chemistry, and then organic chemistry was even more impossible. Because these are... These are designed to weed out uh, people. <laughs> Later on, after I gave up, I took like a physics class that was like just taught at a normal pace. It was an actual class designed to teach physics as opposed to, you know, <laughs> Hunger Games physics, you know. So, so I actually really enjoyed it. But these first couple of years at... Cornell I, I, were just absolute misery. So I just, I finally told my parents, can I just take a year at NYU of arts courses just to see? So I took acting. And I took like radio production and TV production at the at the NYU Tisch School. And I just learned that all I like to do, those, and communications, I realized it's a complete waste of time at college. All I <laughs> enjoy really is writing and Acting; those parts of the production courses I enjoyed when like it was my turn to do one or the other. So I damage controlled the rest of college and finished pre dental. I did it at NYU because I thought that would be easier. Then, when I would do, get a bad grade at NYU, I went in the summer to Hunter College, the City University. <laughs> wow, <laughs> was, you really sprayed even, to all fields collegiately. Yeah. I I kept working my way down the collegiate food chain. I was like, okay, I'll get an NYU degree, but I'll get a B plus in biology because I took it at a summer course at the city university where it's even easier. And I actually did manage to get into dental school because of my father. I only got into the school my father went to, but I did. Enter this stand-up comedy contest. So I'd already given up on the arts at college. I was already back taking pre-dental courses, and I was a political science major now because I didn't want to major in a sci- in biology, or God forbid, chemistry. So I, there was this comedy contest uh, at the student union, and I just wrote an act. And I did it there because, uh, you know, the, all the local clubs like the comic strip, Catch Rising Star was a big one back then. I was afraid somebody who knew me would see me bomb. But here, uh, I, I brought a couple of friends, like really close friends, who would still love me if I failed. And my act did well enough to be one of the winners. So that changed everything.
1: Yeah. That one night,
0: because I, I, in fact, made strangers laugh. And I you know wrote material specifically for strangers, <laughs> <laughs> and it kind of uh, it kind of turned on a, a switch that was like, "God damn it, maybe I can do this." Yeah, so I finished school and uh, deferred my enrollment in the dental school and went to uh, Chicago to take improv courses. And, um, and then
1: I, that sort of, you know, that worked out really well. Back with more. That's what she said with Sarah Spain in just a minute. The holidays are here this year. Give yourself the gift of extra money in your pocket. Pay off your credit card balances and save with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. Lightstream's credit card consolidation loans have rates as low as 5.95 APR with auto pay. Plus there are absolutely no fees, no application fees, no origination fees, no transaction fees, no prepayment penalties. The application is so quick and easy, you can apply right from your phone. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a better loan experience, and that's exactly what they deliver. Just for my listeners, apply now to get a special interest rate discount. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash Spain. That's lightstream.com slash Spain. L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash Spain. Subject to credit approval, rate includes 0.50% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash Spain for more information.
0: That's what she said.
1: Yes, you go to Chicago. You work with a number of names that people would recognize, like Bob Odenkirk um, doing uh, some shows and, and some some sketch comedy, and that's eventually the route that took you to Saturday Night Live. And you yeah. got your big break in part because of the people you associated with and their relationship with Lauren, right? Not
0: exactly. I went, so what happened was, I joined a comedy group in Chicago with some friends who had who I had taken a course with. I, I ended up leaving that one and joining another one, but. That's besides I formed a very successful comedy group with a few people, one of whom is a guy named Dave Reynolds, who ended up being a Conan writer, ended up uh, co-writing Finding Nemo. But back in 1985, he was cast in a movie that was shooting in Chicago that starred Al Franken and Tom Davis, who were original writers from SNL and we're now touring the country doing a club act and they got this opportunity to star in a movie. Al Franken basically played a uh, a musician who had a band that was not unlike like the Grateful Dead. Uh, he's a gigantic deadhead Al Franken. He and Tom Davis were the stars of this movie. It was called One More Saturday Night. It opened and closed In a weekend. But it's, uh, in my opinion, the greatest movie in the history of cinema because it allowed me to meet Al and Tom. So they came to our show and uh, were very complimentary, took us out for beers afterward. It was a great Chicago evening. And uh, Franken was nice to me. He said, "Ah, You remind me of. A cross between uh, Eugene Levy and uh, Albert Brooks and, uh, I don't know, you're Jewish, right? (laughs) So he was really, really nice, actually. Uh, And we thought, okay, well, that was great. Like kind of a validation. These guys liked our show. We're on the right track. And I needed validation because I was 25 now and my parents, I'd been in Chicago for three years and my parents were terrified for my future. (laughs) But uh, Lauren Michaels went back to Saturday Night Live that summer. Like I found out two weeks later by reading TV Guide. That was the only source of industry news back then. And, um, And it said that Lauren Michaels was, returning to Saturday Night Live, he'd been gone for five years, and that he had hired Al Franken and Tom Davis to produce the show. So it was uh, the closest I've ever come to uh, hitting the ceiling, literally. I was (laughs) just in shock and so excited at the possibility of the fact that I was going to know people who had seen what I did and liked it. So they came back, saw the show again with a producer, another producer, and three of us got to audition for Lauren Michaels, and that led to us being flown to New York for interviews, and then one of us continued to audition, not me, an actor named Doug Dale, who's incredibly funny, and just barely got beaten up by John Lovitz. But I ended up getting hired uh, as a writer, and um, that was 1985, and uh, I was so in awe of the place that I, you know, my nerdiness just seeped through <laughs> everything I did. I knew everybody on the staff already just from the credit roll. Oh, my gosh. Big, yeah. Yeah, I was at so that's amazing i would see like uh leo yoshimura who was the set designer and i would say i would very your performance as sulu in the legendary star trek sketch michael who <laughs> wrote is very very appealing <laughs> very very successful sketch <laughs> all right kid, get away from me
1: Oh, I'm sure that they didn't feel that way. Uh, but you are you are sort of, everybody gets thrust into the situation. Everybody talks about SNL being very intimidating when you get there and needing to prove yeah. yourself and, and get your work on the air and, and how tough it can be to come back every week and write and not see your stuff picked up. Um, there's so many of your sketches that people love so much, but what are some of the ones you loved creating? What are you most proud of that you did at SNL?
0: Well, there are ones that are famous that, you know, that have a lot of meaning to me because they sort of helped me break through, especially by my second year. You know, uh, I wrote a monologue for Steve Martin that they still run at Christmas, this holiday wish monologue that he does. Oh uh, it's,
1: yeah, the best! All I the children one. of the world. <laughs> yeah, first yes, the kids stuff. Right. Yeah, oh, yes, yeah. that's that gets quoted right. a lot around this household.
0: <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> Steve Martin has. Is- such a hero of mine growing up that uh that's just always going to be an I can die now moment and then yeah. <laughs> you know I wrote uh, and when I say I wrote it's always a collaboration but if I say I wrote it means it was my idea and then uh, you know other writers that are very brilliant threw in jokes and made it better but uh You know, the William Shatner Star Trek convention was a big one for my career. And uh, Ronald Reagan being the mastermind behind the Iran-Contra hearings Mm -hmm. where Phil Hartman knew everything that was going on and had to pretend he was dumb for the public. Mm -hmm. Those were uh, big ones. That was all in my second year, and that kind of established me there. And then personal favorites, uh, geez, I loved um, Clucking Chicken, which was a commercial parody about a chicken who uh it's just one of the funniest ones to me i always found mascots for a fast food restaurant hilarious because it's always whichever animal has been slaughtered for your right (laughs) and and he's got a giant smile on his face and those sort of (laughs) benevolent eyes that are kind of rolled in your direction kind of the way mickey mouse smiled and um it always cracked me up. So I wrote a sketch where the chicken mascot, you know, they ask him, why is your chicken, why is the fucking chicken so delicious? And he just explains, because we're, I'm flame broiled. <laughs> Here's how we do it. And then it just takes you through the process, starting with his head being chopped off. Yeah. And being hugged and gutted. And it's really grotesque and horrifying. Uh, but, you know, we just see the little happy cartoon chicken watching the reality you know,
1: yeah the uh, the Chick Fil A people probably watched that growing up, and that's why they decided to have cows for their mascot instead. Yeah, the cows, they were all yeah, they were watching true. Cluck and Chicken.
0: <laughs> that is sort of a reaction to all the other uh, happy animal right. mascots. Uh, and uh, yeah, well, if I had anything to do with that, I'd be very proud. <laughs>
1: You and know, then the super uh, fans, of course, which I'm curious, fans. when like, when no, you created Chicago. the super fans, did you think yeah. that you were mocking Chicago sports fans? And then were you surprised that the response from all of us Chicago sports fans was to just really lean into it and say, that is us, and we're okay with that? I did not
0: think it would offend Chicago sports fans, I have to say. I mean, well, here's the thing. So I had the idea for those characters, like my first weekend in... Chicago I went to Wrigley Field I knew nobody I just said can I have a what's the best seat you got and well we got uh then the box office guy's like well uh we got one uh, behind the dugout for 20 bucks I'm like what mm-hmm. the this is not like uh New York it's way better like immediately before <laughs> I even walked into Wrigley Field I know that it's not that way now Chicago's caught up with New York in a lot of ways, in terms of gentrification and cost, but it's still way better. But uh, that's a whole other conversation. Uh, but so I'm sitting behind the dugout, enjoying the game, checking out this beautiful old ballpark, and I realize that the people who are having the most fun are far in the distance, in the sh- in the crappiest seats. You know, and the way I was brought up, they're still. Why are the people in the in the bleachers having the most fun? They're <laughs> screaming. Right field sucks. Left field sucks at each other. It's hilarious, and they're. I want to be over there, and like so. Not only was it amazing because I could sit behind the dugout on day of the game, but it was doubly amazing because you don't even want to sit behind the dugout. You want to be in the bleachers, and uh, I was already in love with the fans. From there, and then I went to Kaminsky like a week later, and that's where I noticed all these people. There were some around Wrigley, but at that time, literally half the guys at Comiskey were wearing exactly what George, Went, Farley, right. Myers, and I would wear every. With the, there were the aviator shades, the walrus stick, mustaches, <laughs> and uh, really tacky, you know, logo packed t-shirt or or sweatshirt uh, over an Oxford collared. Honestly, they wore these weird Oxford <laughs> shirts under the t-shirt. And I just couldn't believe that this uniform existed. And I just filed it away because I never thought of doing anything with it. And when I went to SNL, I never thought of... I thought it was too specific to ever put on SNL. But when... The writer's strike of 1988 happened. Conan, Bob, Odenkirk, and I were all SNL writers who liked performing and had by now written a lot of sketches that that we liked that couldn't get on SNL for one reason or another, including uh, the famous nude beach sketch that um, where the word penis was... Said 28 times and sung another 32 or something, and um, it really did great at the read through. But the standards people wouldn't let us on, let it on at the time. So we were very motivated to, uh, you know, as writers and performers, to, to go back to Chicago and, and just mount a show with all this great material that we received as great material, and so there. I felt like, oh yeah, let's break out these, uh, let's try doing something with these guys. And um, back then it was just three guys on lawn chairs, drinking beer in their backyards, just having a conversation. And they weren't predicting scores or anything. They were just talking about life and the conversation would always end up rolling back to, it. but I'll tell you one thing that you can count on my friend Certain team come January certain team from a certain town will be reigning supreme over the opposition team that is known as step Bears and the fact that just the fact that we kept steering the conversation back to that just got enormous laughs in chicago and and that was great and then I just said that's it. We actually moved the show to L.A. that summer, and I took it out of the show. I was like, this is never going to work in L.A. Right. Uh, uh, and then I just dropped it. And then we came back to SNL, but it was only it was a couple of seasons later. It's not, now it's 1990. Joe Montana hosts, and Odenkirk is just telling me, Robert, we got to try this. <laughs> Robert, the characters are so funny. And I'm just like, nobody's going to like it. But then Bob suggested that we parody another Chicago institution that everybody's hot since, which was the sports writers on TV show. Yeah. A legendary show that started as a radio show in Chicago, with Jouse and, uh, you know, T lander all of them. And, uh, Bob said, let's just have the guys, uh, talking about the bears, uh, in that context. And it's just from the perspective of these uh, cocky doofuses from the south side. (laughs) And then I said, oh, yeah, well, they could predict games. And uh, like, there's 62 to 3. And then once I had that, I felt like, okay, we got a sketch. We can, because we can just make absurd predictions and create absurd scenarios. Then I felt like, okay, this is, this is, Big enough and silly enough that it could work.
1: Big enough that, like, you were embraced by all of the teams in Chicago to be a part of some monumentous occasions in Chicago sports history. I remember you talking at the uh, interview that my husband and I went to go see about gathering money at the Bulls parade after Reinsdorf said they couldn't afford players.
0: Oh, my God, yeah. Chicago embraced the character so much that it literally said the Bulls on the Bulls' sidelines for one season. Like in big letters, and um, we got to go on. That's a fifty-yard line on Soldier Field, Soldier's Field, my friend, and um, and we got to give a pep talk to the Chicago fans. It's the dumbest thing they could have ever asked us to do, but we did it. We we made it. We gave a pep talk before they played Dallas in the playoffs which ended up being Ditka's last game. (laughs) And uh, we entered a kicking competition at halftime, which, (laughs) you know, there's still footage of that that's insane, of Farley falling on his face. but um, And then the Bulls asked us to do a pep talk for game six against Portland at Chicago Stadium. So that was just George and me. And then we watched the game, and it was just it was the game they won the championship, and it was the first time another Chicago leading the rest of the country. It was the first time a team ever celebrated with their fans on the court. like Jordan literally just led the team back they didn't get the the trophy on the court back then, but they got the trophy like <laughs> in the locker room, and then Jordan just ran back on the court with the team. And they started playing, you know, Gary Glitter again. And it was the first time that had ever happened. Like, you know, the equivalent of a Stanley Cup celebration right, uh, in the NBA. And, you know, it really could only happen in Chicago because, uh, I believe, because there's just a different level of specialness to the fans there.
1: Well, it's um, remarkable that you're still doing segments, you know, for Peyton's Manning show and stuff with the NFL for their hundred year anniversary. I mean, it, it really had incredible lasting yeah. power.
0: Yeah. We wrote a couple of new ones this year with a couple of great writers who live in Chicago. Cause I'm like, so out of it. I knew a couple of really funny guys in Chicago who are comedians who, who could give me kind of stuff that's more relevant to people who are following the teams closely. And, uh, yeah, I love doing that character, and what's nice about it is that uh, it ages well because, like, those guys don't really exist anymore <laughs> unless they're, like, in their 50s and 60s. So, you know, it's a lot of fun. I, w- I would like to keep doing them. I- I- any excuse to go to Chicago is is fun for me. And, and to to do a comedy bit with Brett Favre, Brett Favre was, like, my favorite football player of the last 20 years. And I love Peyton Manning, too.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're still doing some of the work from, from years ago that was first created then, and you're even going back to SNL occasionally. I know you went back for, for Adam Sandler's return. Any chance yeah. you'll find your way into the building for Eddie Murphy's trumpet return?
0: I don't know him. He he preceded me, actually. He's from before my time. He'll probably bring back, like, maybe some of his writers. Who knows? But uh, right. I would love to write for Eddie Murphy, but um, I never want to impose myself on like the writers they've got a great staff of writers there right now and um, in fact like when I, when I went there to write for Adam I just sort of fell into old habits like okay I'm just going to write whatever's funny to me and back <laughs> when I was a staff member I had no fear of anything bombing because I was sort of established after the first couple of years as uh, a successful writer there so if something bombed I didn't feel like I was being judged as like, oh, he's he's not going to make it. (laughs) I forgot until I got to the read through that. um, No, idiot, you're actually going to be judged. Nobody's really seen you write a sketch in 20 years. (laughs) Does he still have
1: it? Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And like and they put my stuff like in the second half. And so I got to listen to like 20 sketches, which like I'd say 15 of them. I thought were hilarious. And, and I suddenly hit me like, what the, f- I'm such an <laughs> idiot. I, did, I take, why didn't I take this into account? And sure enough, a couple of my sketches kind of ate it. And yeah. uh, thank God one of them did really great, which was almost enough to redeem myself, I think. <laughs> and it didn't get on the show though. What ended up getting on the show was, Literally on Friday morning, my mother called me and said, he's not doing opera, man? (laughs) Uh, And I'm like, oh, he's got a lot of great stuff. It's kind of cool that he's not doing anything old. People are going to want to see opera, man. And then I realized, (laughs) I called Adam and I said, if you do opera, man, and it kills, it's going to make everything else you do funnier and easier.
1: Yeah. yep. Mama's always right.
0: Yeah, so we wrote, (laughs) me and a couple of guys wrote, that opera man and um,
1: that's fun you know thankfully yeah.
0: that did great otherwise i would have had nothing i would have
1: <laughs> uh and just, the, have memories. Yeah, as a just the memories yeah yeah we'll be right back with more that's what she said with sarah spain hiring is challenging but you know there's a place you can go where hiring is simple fast and smart where growing businesses can connect to qualified candidates Codable co-founder Gretchen Heebner experienced how challenging hiring can be after unsuccessfully searching for a new game artist to grow with her education tech company. But then she switched to ZipRecruiter and saw an immediate difference. And you can, too, by signing up for free said, ZipRecruiter Zip doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them for you. And by using ZipRecruiter's screening questions to filter candidates, Gretchen found it easier to focus on the best ones, then find the right one. In fact, after posting her job on ZipRecruiter, Gretchen said she was honestly surprised she found qualified applicants so quickly and hired a new game artist in less than two weeks. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at their web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash said. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash S-A-I-D.
0: That's what she said.
1: We don't have that much time, which is a shame because I have a billion things to talk to you about, but I really want you to talk about the Dana Carvey show that you were executive producing for. And oh, it really, it, it, it set so many careers on a great path, Colbert and Corell and those guys. But I just love the story you told about the very first sketch in the very first episode. You're coming out swinging at 9:30 okay. PM with, with a Bill Clinton sketch. Please explain how somehow this set you up right. on perhaps a bad path.
0: Yes. Well, Again, okay, so now I'm in my mid-30s and, uh, and I've recruited a few writers who've also had some success, uh, starting up the Conan show, including, uh, you know, this uh, great Chicago writer, Dino Samatopoulos, who created the show Moral Oral, if you've ever heard of that on Adult Swim, and, and, and Louis C.K. actually was, uh, one of the greatest Conan writers that we hired, and we brought him on for this show, and, this idea was Louis. It was that Bill Clinton would announce that um, he could be both the mother and the father. For some reason, Hillary was, this was at the height of white water. And Hillary mm-hmm. actually, her popularity was very low at this moment. This is 1996. Clinton's kind of a shoe in to be reelected. His only liability is Hillary. So he was saying to the, uh, he was addressing the country and kind of giggling about his prospective opponents and then assuring the country that Hillary was going to be locked in a cell somewhere, uh, (laughs) where she couldn't hurt anybody. And this got a huge laugh in 1996 that he was going to serve as both mother and he, because as we all know, he's the, I feel your pain president, the nurturing president that he was going to serve as both mother and father to Americans. And, um, in keeping with that he has uh, worked with scientists who've allowed him to develop to develop the ability to breastfeed and that's all it was going to be <laughs> we we're going to take out a little baby doll and show him uh, suckling and if we had gotten out at that point maybe the show would have uh, not been dead on arrival but instead i said uh this was at the height of my cartoonish impulses Having done a few years starting the Conan show and on my way to doing SNL cartoons, I said, uh, "Why don't we also have him uh, be able to breastfeed kittens and puppies and, and give him multiple <laughs> nipples, like eight nipples, like a like a dog or a cat has? Because that's just going to look really funny." And to us, it did, and uh, it got big <laughs>, laughs with the audience. I don't know if they were shocked where they were laughing at the idea that we thought this was funny, but we were seduced by their laughter. And um, nobody at ABC objected to it. Nobody at Taco Bell, our sponsor, objected to it, except for one guy named David Weston at ABC, who uh, ended up being the only guy who didn't get fired within the next year and a half. But uh, everybody kind of, like, bulldozed this guy, he said, no, it's great. And then the next day, the network was flooded with complaints. Taco Bell announced that they were pulling out as a sponsor, which was, we had called the show the Taco Bell Dana Carvey show because Dana thought it would be funny to have sponsors attached by name <laughs> like the Tostitos festival right But my favorite football call of all time, Brent Busberger. the Penultimate field goal. I can't remember who was competing, but (laughs) literally three seconds left field goal for the national championship. And Brett Musburger pulls out. This is for all the Tostitos.
1: (laughs) And that actually became a sketch on SNL years later that Andy Samberg narrated that included the Fidelity Investments for Loco Life Begins at Conception Bowl. It was really? a send-up of all the fake bowl games.
0: It was oh, so that's good. so fun. So <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, we got all these complaints. Taco Bell pulled out, and we found out we got the minute-to-minute ratings. They had, they had just invented this thing, minute-to-minute ratings, and <laughs> they found out that we had lost like two-thirds of our audience. We inherited this enormous audience from Home Improvement, which is a show I'd never seen in my life. And had no idea that it was a show that kids watch with their parents. We had inherited the biggest audience in television. It was the number one show. And we had squandered it within the first 10 minutes. We Mm. were down to like a third of the audience. So we continued for seven more episodes. And um, the show got better, I think, as it went along. But it didn't matter.
1: So... The nice thing so. that came out of it, one nice thing for sure, was the ambiguously gay duo, which leads to TV Funhouse. And this ties back yes. to what you said yes. about when you were a kid, like you most wanted to do, which was cartoons. You also do yes. puppets with with Triumph that was born on, yes. on Late Night with Conan O'Brien. So is there something yes. that you can figure about why your comedy came in this form of of things that entertain kids? Why is that what you're drawn to?
0: I just think I was a very cynical kid. I hated Mickey Mouse when I was like, by the time I was five, I, I, I saw right through him. This is a, a, this is a
1: Disney company, Robert. So, you know, let's oh. not have a Taco Bell situation here. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot. Yeah. No, you can yeah. take shots at Mickey. Listen, he's too big there for there you to anything- take down.
0: <laughs> yeah. Is there anything Disney doesn't own at this point? But, no, um, not
1: really. I think by the yeah. end of this podcast, they legally own you. Just I, I I hope you saw that on the paperwork that you signed.
0: That's more than okay. As long as I get paid like Mickey. Yeah. Um, I can take down Mickey. It's Baby Yoda you can't touch right
1: You now. can't touch Baby Yoda right now. He's hot. No way.
0: They'll take us all off the air. Uh, but yeah, I just found... Um, I just had this rebellious, cynical quality uh, from a very young age. And so making fun of anything that seemed like it was talking down to children always made me laugh even back then so it was like once I was sort of freed of SNL which I enjoyed doing and I loved it and but I always kind of like I started there trying to write crazy things and then I was quickly kind of beaten into submission to write the funniest possible sketches that worked within the SNL framework and then then once we started Conan that was like a playground where I could try anything and be as silly as as I wanted to and because we had success doing that I kind of hung on to that for quite a while. Uh, and now I'm still doing triumph all these years later because people still like it. And yeah. um, it's a way to get paid as the star as well. As <laughs> as
1: producing. the writer. Right. Yes, well, and, writer, and triumph so. can be inserted into so many different places, whether that's you doing an election special, or as I mentioned, the mask yeah. singer, he can kind of appear anywhere I actually oh. wanted to ask you about the um, the ambiguously gay duo. I read that there was a movie script for it. What are the chances that that still could one day be made? I mean, this this with Corral oh. and Colbert, it would be amazing.
0: I don't know how people feel about it nowadays, you know? I mean, it was not a homophobic cartoon at all. It was making fun of everyone's obsession with sexuality. Nowadays, People are still obsessed with sexuality, but it's more in the form of identity politics, you know? Uh, right. So it would have to be different than what we wrote. What we wrote, Colbert and I, was a movie, we kind of did like five minutes of it on SNL with John Hamm and Jimmy Fallon. It was basically like there was a rogues gallery of villains, and uh, over the course of the movie, they have an evil plot to take over the world, but they keep getting sidetracked in their war room <laughs> meetings by arguments over whether Ace and Gary are gay. And over the course of the movie, their plots to take over the world get pushed aside for more and more intricate plots to figure out whether definitively Ace and Gary are gay. or.
1: The sketch with those guys was amazing. I mean, you're right. it, It would make a great movie. It's just a matter of whether we've lost the sort of cultural moment for it to fit into.
0: Right. It might be something that, like, you could either set it in the 90s or you could make it about you could you could have the element of identity politics and have a group that wants them to be their symbols and they're completely perplexed right. about it you know it could be something <laughs> right. like that there is a company that actually wants to make it again they want it animated like in uh 3d like uh they don't want to do a live action they're an animation studio that wants to uh it, it's the same studio that did um charlie kaufman's movie Lisa that was incredibly right. realistic stop motion they'd like to do it and colbert and corell are still into voicing it but i'd have to rewrite it and figure it out yeah but you never, you never know i awesome. also wanted i you wanted to do it as a know. musical actually i thought that would oh, be <laughs> that would be great yeah because spider-man uh uh, It was actually yeah, just those kind of overwrought superhero movies and plays that take themselves so seriously would be fun to parody it from that angle as well. But it'll never happen.
1: Time for a quick break. And then more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. There's another great ESPN podcast you should check out. It's Laughter Permitted with Julie Foudy. This week, UConn legend and WNBA superstar Brianna Stewart joins the show to talk about winning four national championships in college, her WNBA title with the Seattle Storm, and how she and Kevin Durant have bonded over a shared injury. Download and subscribe to Laughter Permitted wherever you get your podcasts.
0: That's what she said. Comedy is
1: so hard because there's this need for this freedom. In order to explore and to find these crazy things, but you also have to have the structure of, okay, but we need to be done by a certain time for it to go on the air. And so wrangling all that is, I think, one of the the most important things probably of your job, which can be the toughest when there are really brilliant people that think outside the box and operate in ways that aren't conducive to getting shit done.
0: The one show that I'm still, like, I lose my mind over, the only thing I do nowadays that I, I, I sometimes find myself losing my mind over in terms of wanting it to be good and feeling like it's life or death is the night of too many stars autism benefit because there's just so much at stake. And it's a real struggle every year to get the audience to know that this is going to be a really funny, entertaining show and not just a, right. a dull fundraiser. And there is so much at stake. I mean, I want to keep doing those shows and... um We've raised $30 million for programs and schools and services for people with autism uh, over the years, and it's the most important thing that I ultimately do. So that's the one place where I really try to check myself and, like, okay, try to just, just just calm
1: down. Just, well, it's a beautiful yeah. show. It's really entertaining. And you've you've won some awards for the writing on it, some really, really clever bits. Uh, yeah. And actually what's fascinating about – you say that that's still where you want the, the control and the perfection. This moment during the show that was ultimately imperfect where that uh, wonderful young woman who communicates via computer and is yes. a sort of nonverbal talk show host – was set to do an interview on stage uh, of Stephen Colbert. And because of this...
0: Her name is Carly Fleischman.
1: Yeah, Carly Carly Fleischman. That was a
0: very, very funny, intelligent uh, woman who who does aspire to do a talk show, and she's very witty. And um, she was all set to do this bit with Stephen Colbert, and unfortunately there was uh, confetti on the floor from an earlier bit that was supposed to be completely swept away, but uh, somehow in my control freakery, I missed seeing that it hadn't all been swept away. <laughs> I, I didn't really think I, I just kind of took it for granted, but you know, in fairness to the stage crew, they did the best they could. The confetti was way harder to sweep away. It was like this metallic stuff that just adheres to the ground. And, um, she ended up kind of, uh, obsessing on the confetti on the floor and was unable to conduct the interview that she wanted to do. and um, uh, You know, and then for the rest of the show, I was all I was concerned about was that that Carly was okay. And
1: um, well, they made good on it, and it actually was a moment of such incredible visual understanding for people watching at home that this girl who could be brilliant, and we saw this pre-produced bit about her interviews and the work that she could do, and then to see how this affected her just showed you the everyday life of people with autism and the people around them and, yeah. and how things can be derailed. And I think it was really more powerful than some of the other stuff just because it was unscripted. It was, it was I agree. There incredible. There were people who told me that
0: night, they said that was the best part of the show because yeah. it actually, yeah. it actually demonstrated something real and um, it was really compelling. And John Stewart handled it really well, you know, taking full responsibility for the confetti. And then we set up a thing at the end where Steven and Carly were on camera together, explaining that he was going to let her get another chance on his own show, yeah. which he did yeah. and um and that went great, so that worked out. I was very proud of that show but yeah it's it's there's just a lot at stake with that mm. with that thing yeah and uh you know but everything's a learning process you know i i I'll always be figuring out how to do this properly uh, <laughs> you know until I stop doing it.
1: Right. Well, you can't stop anytime soon because as you know, my husband has offered to quit his job at any moment and do a free internship for you. He just, he wants to know when he can start. Uh, he was so enamored with your kindness and how interesting and funny and smart and, and kind with your time you were when we hung out in Chicago that he's now decided that his life's goal is to, is to work for you. So uh, you'll have to figure out that internship.
0: Yeah. Uh, anytime he wants to, uh, Come To a Trump rally with me uh, as Triumph, he can uh, be my security <laughs> you know, and then work your way up to uh writer. But you just every, all my writers start as security first. Well, uh, you're you know. in
1: luck. He's very tall, so he'll be one of the more appropriate security yeah, uh, members guess, that you've had.
0: <laughs> I think could easily take on 10 or 20 angry, uh, <laughs> angry Trump supporters.
1: <laughs> um. Let's talk about, quickly, before we let you go, since we're running out of time, let's make a poop. Yes. Why will people want to listen to Triumph's new podcast?
0: Well, Conan actually suggested that I try a podcast. He's been having so much fun in the podcast world. He said, what about a Triumph podcast? And my first thought was, I don't know, everybody's doing this, and Triumph just interviewing people and being mean. I guess I could make it funny, but, uh, but then I remembered an idea I'd had a while back to do a quiz show with triumph and I had thought about it for television, but doing it for a podcast, it was even looser and more fun. And it's kind of like an evil version of wait, wait, don't tell me, but not, not, not exactly. Uh, you're basically getting jeopardy style questions and triumph is providing, you're supposed to guess the, uh, the answers to these questions. And, um, uh, and of course all the answers are, uh, in the form of uh, mean jokes. So,
1: <laughs> oh, this sounds know. right up my alley.
0: Yeah. And we have like three celebrity panelists who are playing along when this one, we had Lawrence O'Donnell from MSNBC and we had Pete Davidson who was nice enough to come and, and, and we had Anthony Scaramucci who will do oh, any podcast. Imaginable. The mooch. He will
1: literally yeah, do absolutely. anything at this point. I think <laughs> he's yes, available. He's
0: not- <laughs> Somehow the mooch said yes. I I, I still can't believe uh, we landed the mooch. No, he uh, <laughs> he actually was a lot of fun and and played the game really well. He guessed more answers than anybody. I don't want to spoil it, but let me see if I can find one example of a. Um, shares a border with Ohio, Indiana, the Canadian province of Ontario. Any guesses? I should do this in triumphs yeah. for you. Ohio. Shares yeah. a border with Ohio, Indiana, the Canadian province of Ontario. Michigan. Sorry, uh who is Michael Moore? You see, because <laughs> he's enormous. He <laughs> okay.
1: Has a okay, triumph. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's it's that kind of thing. Uh Matt Lauer owed his career not to ABC or C B S, but to these three letters.
1: Uh NDA? Yes. Yes. You could play the
0: game. <laughs> you would have won that round. Nobody guessed it. Nice. Like they literally guessed somebody literally guessed NBC and I was, this is a comedy yeah. show. You know? yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, well, uh, I love everything. Triumph, the triumph at the wiener circle is still like, some of the most laughter and pee inducing, uh, tear inducing uh, stuff I've ever seen. Um, and triumph during oh, yeah. the election special as well. Just so good. So I imagine that this podcast will be a roaring success.
0: No, it's a lot, it was a lot of fun. We did it in front of a live audience. So uh, it's got a totally different energy than most podcasts you hear. And uh, we'll do more if I can get celebrities to put up with it.
1: You've got a good network. I think you'll be all right, kid. You got, you got something and going for you.
0: We'll <laughs> see what happens. That's what she said.
1: It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me, and I fix it. This week, the last guy at a party. We threw our annual Fletch and Avi Dodge shindig this past weekend. It was awesome. It's a combo of Christmas party and my dog Fletch's birthday party, obviously. It was awesome. The, the, The costumes were amazing. The food was good. The drinks were flowing. There was minimal damage done to my house. All good. In fact, it was such a good party that nobody wanted to leave. It started at 7.30 p.m., and seven hours later, there were still people at my house. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this, because 3 a.m., what are we, college kids? Get out of my damn house. I have to wake up tomorrow and clean 8,000 Solo cups and two pans of crusted-over hot onion dip and a bowl of hard brown guacamole and whatever number of fallen soldiers you idiots opened and then left somewhere half full sprinkled throughout my house. Five bottles of half-drunk wine and whatever the hell's leaking out of the garbage can. The point is, I have a lot to do in the morning, and I need some rest, and I shouldn't have to play Closing Time, literally, the song Closing Time, for the five of you still milling about thinking that Beyonce's going to stroll through the door and really kick off the final swing of the party. It's over. Get the hell out of my house. Okay. All right. I feel good about what we accomplished today. Please come to my party, but only stay until I'm tired, and then get the hell out. There. I fixed it. This week's listener dilemma comes from Kiana Chiasin. I really hope I said your name right. She says, how do you respond if someone asks you if you're pregnant and you're not? This was in the context of you shouldn't be doing your job because you're pregnant. Okay. Okay. This is a tough one because it's not like they were trying to be an asshole, right? Like when someone tweeted me, are you pregnant or just fat? When I wore a cute dress that was like in real life, cute, but not cute on TV. That person was being a dick and that person was reacted to AKA blocked accordingly. But this person seems like they want to do the right thing, but is unfortunately a gigantic moron who somehow exists in the year 2019 without knowing that you never, ever, ever ask a woman if she's pregnant. Like unless her water is breaking on your foot or you can see the crown of a skull you just never chance it. If someone needs help with something heavy or a seat on the bus or to be rushed immediately to a gynecologist, they'll probably ask you for it. I mean, you know, good manners for all people pregnant or not is probably a safe way to avoid all of this and help a potentially pregnant but not really showing and maybe too nervous to ask for help person. But in the case of no baby, while it may be tempting to snap at someone and while your natural response is not likely to be able to laugh... If the intentions were good and you just kind of want to move past the awkwardness of all of it, I recommend that you diffuse it with humor. couple suggestions. Pregnant, (laughs) that's just a burrito baby from lunch. I'm good. Pregnant, (laughs) you've had to have sex in the last century to get pregnant. Am I right? Pregnant, (laughs) I'm just having dogs, not kids. I want to ruin my carpet, not my life. You get it, right? Okay, feel free to use one of those. She also asked, white or multicolored lights on a Christmas tree? This is really easy. I mean, to each their own. They both look nice. But I do white lights outside the house, nice and classy, and colored lights on the tree. They help illuminate the ornaments and make it more joyful and bright and all that. I hope that helps, Kiana, if that is how you say your name. If you have a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me, at Sarah Spain, or go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe, rate, and review. And leave the dilemma in your review. I might fix it on the show. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said.